So um, right before Aaron and I moved away 10 years ago, uh, if, if you don't know us, we used to be here. And if you do know us and you thought we were gone for a while, we were for about a decade. Uh, but before we left to go to grad school in Philly, um, we knew that we needed a car, a new car. Now, at the time, uh, I was a grad student and Aaron worked at Starbucks, which meant the budget was small for this car. Um, we found a car, a, a great deal, a car in Indiana, and so I drove down to get it. It was a 2002 Chevy Impala. It was not that old, right? This was 10 years ago, so it was not even a decade old. The engine was in pretty good shape. Uh, the uh, interior of the car was pretty decent, but it had been in an accident, and so it was super cheap. And I don't know very much about cars at all. Like, I know how to check oil. I don't know how to do anything else. So I know almost nothing about cars, but I knew there was something very wrong with this car when I first got it, because to drive straight, you almost had to have the wheel at close to like a 90 degree angle. If that is you, if you have a car like that, you should take it to a garage. Um, but you probably have an alignment issue. So I drove this car from Indiana to Wheaton like this for, I don't know, like two or three hours. I tell you this story because we're looking at Psalm 84 this morning, and this is a psalm that is all about desire. It's about longing. It's about what pulls on our hearts. And I think desire is something that can be hard to talk about. And it's certainly something that is hard to confront. Because if you or I feel something very deeply, if we experience longings and urgings and yearning deep at the core of our being, the most logical thing, the most natural thing to do is to follow it, is to live on it is to live into it. But before we go that route and before we even look in this psalm, I, I want you to consider this. If your heart is like my Chevy Impala, if your alignment is off, even the slightest, to follow your heart, to follow your urges, to follow just your longings and your desires could actually be disastrous. It is not going to get you where you want to go. It's not going to lead you down the road. It's going to throw you into the ditch and off course. To follow our hearts unquestionably is to believe that our hearts are not broken. And the scriptures certainly don't hold this view, but even I would argue, wherever you're coming from this morning, your experience does not fit with the belief that your heart should just be followed without question. We live in a world that's pretty easy to look around and see that our world is broken. It's pretty easy when you're in relationship with other people to see that other people are broken. Do we think that we are the sole person in the world whose heart has been untouched. And even, like, think about your desires. I know for me, do we even know what we want all the time? Aren't our desires often extremely confusing and conflicting? I want to tell this person what I think. I also want to have a good relationship with them. You could go on and on. Psalm 84 is about desire, and it's about this deep heart alignment that we need and I would tell you that Psalm 84 is a picture of a heart that is in tune with the greatness and the value and the glory of who God is. And because of that, it's a psalm that instructs us in how to desire. 
So as we think about this this morning, I think there are three things that our hearts need to desire well and three things that this psalm actually guides us in and and shows us. So these three that we're going to think about this morning is we need the right object, then we need the right path, and finally we we need a great king. So let's think about each of these, the right object, the right path, and a great king. First, the right object. And just to enter into this, I want you to think, what pulls your heart? What tugs at your heart? What's the thing on a particular day that is kind of guiding you into that day? Why did you even get up? Why do you go through the day? What's the pull in your life? What is your heart after? For the writer of this psalm, if you have it out, and I'd encourage you to to have it out so we can look at it together, it's really clear the object of this man's heart. The goal, the object is God. And so let's first kind of step into his world and try and see the greatness of God through his eyes. The psalmist quite simply finds God beautiful. Verse 1 starts this way, how lovely, or you could translate it, how beloved is your dwelling place, Lord of armies. This is language of love poetry. This place where God is, is beloved because he is there. Verse 2, I long and yearn for the courts of the Lord. Now both of these verbs are very strong, but, but together they're even stronger. He's saying, I have a deep heartache. I am homesick for God. I am torn up inside with my longing for you. And the second half of verse 2, my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Who longs for the Lord? It's, it's not just like this little part of him. It's, it's not, you know, sometimes our culture, when we talk about religion, you know, it's like, are you a religious person? Do you, do you have a little piece of you that you choose to engage in a religious manner? This is his entire being. He says, right, my interior, my heart, the, the, the part of me that, that feels and thinks and makes decisions, the control center of my life, that part of me, but also my flesh, all that I am, cries out for the living God, the God who has life in himself, the God who gives life. And he goes on in verse 3, in a sense, let me tell you why God is so beautiful. Even a sparrow finds a home and a swallow, a nest for herself, where she places her young, near your altars, Lord of armies, my King and my God. Think about this picture that he paints. Throughout the psalm, four times we find this uh, phrase, Lord of the armies, this title for God. And it's it's obviously a title that that has this sense of God's power and his strength and his might. And yet right here in this verse, it's put right next to this picture of God's tenderness, that he is gentle, that he cares. This sparrow has a home in the temple. This swallow has a home and her little baby birds have a nest right next to the altar. The writer is totally in love. He is infatuated. And you could almost hear him saying like, this is my king and this is my God. Look at his power. Look at his tender care. And if even the birds find such a welcome and a home there, verse four, how happy are those of us who reside in his house, 
who praise you continually. This is how the psalm starts, but then at the end of the psalm, it comes back to this idea. So if you go to verse 10 of the passage, better a day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I want you to try to think, is there a place that you would say this is true of you? In terms of in this world, I literally can't think of a place. I mean, is there any place that you would say one day there is better than a thousand anywhere else? Last week I talked about uh, my trip to Paris. It was uh, about three years ago. Aaron and I went for our 10th anniversary and how awesome Paris was and how much we loved it and how beautiful it was and it was the best food I've ever eaten my entire life and it was so relaxing and the whole thing was amazing. But I would not say one day in Paris is better than a thousand anywhere else because you could go to Rome or you could go somewhere else cool. You go to a beach and sit for a thousand days. I'd say that's pretty comparable. Is there anything that we could think of to say one day in that place is better than a thousand anywhere else. And I just want you to think, like, if you had a friend that came and talked to you about anyone or anything else in this way that the psalmist is talking, you would think that that person is crazy and probably, like, stupid in love, like, dangerously infatuated with the object of his or her desire. In other words, don't sanitize this. Don't strip away the language. I tried. I listened to five or six pop songs from 2019 yesterday in my office trying to find a comparable song. I listened to way too much Jonas Brothers than I ever care to again. But there is nothing that I found that is comparable to the kind of language that you see here, this language of longing and yearning and desire. But this is why the object of that desire is so important. Because... I want you to think, what if we change the object of the longing? What if what really pulls and tugs at our heart is not God? I want you to think about these words that we've just read and thought about, but imagine them with a different goal, with a different object of desire. My soul, my heart, my flesh yearn for you, alcohol, pornography, One day with you, alcohol, is better than a thousand that I could spend. This is language of addiction. This is all-consuming, totalizing language. Again, don't sanitize it. The, The desire of the psalmist, it is not polite. It is not moderate. It is yearning for God. Which again, why the object of the desire is so crucial I don't know if any of you listened to um, Joe Rogan's podcast, uh, The Joe Rogan Experience, but um, in one of the episodes, he interviews this guy named Russell Brand. If you don't know who that is, uh, Brand is a British comedian and actor. And at one point in the interview, Brand begins to reflect on his own experience of addiction. He was a former drug addict, a former heroin addict, and he reflects on this addiction alongside the years and years that he spent basically pursuing sexual encounter after sexual encounter as much as his appetite could devour. And he talks about this pursuit of sexuality. Literally, he he says, it was about worship for me. I adore, I adore. 
But he said in the midst of that pursuit, it kept leaving him feeling empty. It never led to the wholeness that he was longing for. And then he says this, which is so interesting. He says, quote, I never would have spotted it had I not first been a heroin addict and gone, hold on a minute, you're doing that thing again. Because I had the template and experiences, oh, this is addiction. You're expecting this thing to make you feel better. Because Russell Brand was a former drug addict, he had a template. He had a pattern that he understood. He saw what he was doing in trying to hook up with as many people as possible. And he saw, I'm trying to make myself happy, but it's actually not leading to wholeness. It's not giving me what I really long for. And the Bible and the scriptures tell us repeatedly that there is nothing, nothing that is going to give wholeness and life other than God. That you can yearn for and you can adore and you can desire all sorts of things. I mean, there is an infinite number of things in this world that can be the thing that really pulls your heart. Right? We could think, we could list some of the common ones, maybe even for us. Career. That's the drive. Money. Comfort. Being loved and, and just embraced by tons of people, having all of these friends. It could be, it could be our kids, that, that our kids turn out so perfect. That's, that's the longing. That's the desire. It could be some really great social cause. But none of them are meant to be the object of your heart. And if something other than God is the object of your heart, this psalm would say, your heart is out of alignment. Because Russell Brand was an addict, he saw something that a lot of us, I think, miss. Because it's very easy to literally make your whole life and all of your desires about fulfilling something in this world, some great cause, some person, but in reality, we're using it to just try and make ourselves feel better. We're not really loving this person, this cause, this thing. We're using it. And really what the whole Bible teaches us is that for our desires to be rightly ordered, we have to love and desire God first. And as we love and desire God, it's like this, this fountain comes out. And now as we start to love people and things, we actually love them in a way that leads to life and wholeness for them and for us. You have to have the right object. But to have God as the object of our desires, you also have to have the right path, I would say, because I think we all know this, right? Desiring is not, you never stop. This is a dynamic, constant sort of thing. And our hearts are always going in some direction, which is why I think the middle of this psalm is about a journey. We need the right path. And if you look at verses 5 through 7, I think you see this. Now, there's three things I want to mention with this path, three ways of being on this path. And you can be really impressed today because I'll never do this again. They all start with P. So they're very remember, you can remember them easy. Uh, there's a posture, there's a perspective, and then there's people. So to be on this right path, we need a certain posture. And I think we see this in verse 5. 
Happy are the people whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. This is the posture. It's a posture of relying upon God to be my strength, depending on him. And when God is your strength, this verse says your heart is set on pilgrimage, or literally you could translate it highways in your heart. When God is your strength, there are highways in your heart leading you home, which means in this world you're never home. So there's this very right sense of you feel kind of displaced here. You, this world never really feels like home. This is part of being on the path. Another thing that's really helpful just for reading scripture, sometimes to make a verse really like stick out at you or a passage, flip the meaning and ask, what would happen if this wasn't true? So let's think about that for a minute. What what happens if the Lord is not your strength? Perhaps it means, you know, to the second part of this verse, it means that there are no highways in your heart. You just get stuck right here with the things around you. Or maybe there's highways in your heart, but they lead to everything else but God. And when I think about myself, that is my experience. When God is not my strength, when I am not relying on him, depending on him, when that's not my posture, when something stressful comes or something hard comes or something really sad comes, my heart goes all sorts of different ways to try to find escape, comfort, fix the situation, and oftentimes in ways that are destructive. We need this posture of dependence upon God. And this is one reason, one reason why we have to pray. Because prayer puts us in this posture of resting in God and on depending on him and needing him. And I, and I would say we need to pray, but we need to not just pray right when we feel like it or, or when something bad is going on. But I think we need to pray regularly. I mean, think about what if we prayed in the morning when we got up to remember who God is as we start our day and we paused at midday, middle of the day, to remember who God is and his promises and ask for the things we need help. And then we paused again right before we head into the evening to remember what God has done this day, to confess our sins, to ask for his help, and then right before bed again. That's this kind of posture of, I'm relying on the Lord as my strength and he's showing me the way home and there are highways in my heart. To be on this right path, we also need a certain perspective. And you can see this in verse 6, where it says, As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a source of spring water. Even the autumn rain will cover it with blessings. This, uh, this valley of Baca, the word Baca is used in 2 Samuel with reference to these trees um, that are believed to grow in a, in a desert, sort of arid sort of place. And it's also a word that sounds very, very similar to the Hebrew verb to weep. So you might even find translations that translate this, the valley of weeping or the valley of tears. And here the writer is telling us, as you're on this path, 
this path of longing for the Lord and desiring Him, you are going to go through seasons where your life feels like a desert. You're going to go through seasons where you feel like you're going through a valley of tears, where you are just surrounded by sadness and where life is hard. But those who walk on this path, they have a certain perspective, which is described in this second phrase, they make it a source of spring water. Now, I don't want to fool you. I am no Hebrew scholar, but uh, someone I was reading this week who is a Hebrew scholar uh, said that the sense in this phrase is they treat it as a place of springs. That is, they face the desert and they face the sadness and they face this, this weeping valley with assurance and confidence that God is going to supply. They have this attitude of trust in the valley. And God, who is their strength, supplies them and gives them what they need. And if prayer was the thing that we really needed, I think, for the posture, for the perspective, we need the scriptures. We need God's word. We, we need to hear it. We need to read it. We need to sit with it and let it just go in our brains and meditate on it, roll it over and over and over again. Because we need to keep seeing who this God is if we're going to trust him. We need to see what his character is like. We need to see his graciousness and his goodness and his faithfulness. We need to read the stories that recount how good and faithful he has been. We need to read his promises and hear him speak those through the scriptures to our own hearts that we would trust in the valley. The third thing that we need to be on this right path is we need people. We need others. This probably should be really obvious, but I was reading this text all week and Friday, I'm staring at the text and I'm thinking, verse five, how happy are the people whose strength is in you? Verse six, as they pass through the valley. Verse seven, as they go from strength to strength. To walk the path, you need other people. This is really hard, I think, at this time, COVID time. Uh, and I just want to say that we, like, we recognize that there are very, very good and legitimate reasons why some of us cannot gather at this time because of our own health, because of the jobs that we work. But I want to ask and I want to push us to say, whatever our situation is, how can we still make sure that we are together? Are we leaning into community as much as possible with other believers? If we can't meet, do we call? As we're here and we notice people who are not here, are we calling them? Are we reaching out to them? Are we encouraging them? Are we praying with and for them? One of the things that we talked about early on, like right when I came on staff in June, was that I think there's a danger of this time where we have become more and more accustomed to not meeting, to not gathering. And Jeff had this great way of putting it. It's like perhaps some of our muscles have fatigued in this way. They've atrophied. And it might be hard to just get back to getting together and meeting because Zoom is frustrating and it's hard to gather and it's frustrating and, and all of these things. But I think what we see in this passage is we have to have each other to walk on this path. 
And the New Testament tells us that the place where God dwells is his people, individually and collectively. That we are like living stones, side by side, built on top of each other. This place, this temple where God dwells. And it is a really hard time because we are living stones that have to social distance. Right? I mean, that doesn't fit with the imagery, but somehow we have to figure out how we can continue to be together and how we can continue to help each other to walk this path. This vision of walking this path together, I think verse 7 sums it up well. They go from strength to strength. Each appears before God in Zion. As I was working on the text this week and thinking about it, I came across a prayer called A Liturgy for Battling a Destructive Desire. And I would so encourage you, if you're here this morning and you know that desire is just such a, such a struggle, such an area of battle in your life, look this up. Look up this liturgy of prayer. Google Liturgy for Battling a Destructive Desire. The last paragraph of this prayer, I, d- I think it perfectly depicts what we see in verse 7. Listen to these words. Let me build then, my king, a beautiful thing by long obedience, by the steady progression of small choices that laid end to end will become like the stones of a pleasing path stretching into eternity and into your welcoming arms and under the sound of your voice pronouncing the judgment, well done. That's the image of verse 7. It's a summary, I think, of, of this whole section that we follow the Lord, we walk this pilgrim path, we're trusting in him, we're relying on him as, a, as our strength, we're doing this with other people and we're doing it one step at a time and it's like one brick, one stone after another leading into the arms of God who embraces us and welcomes us home. The last thing that we need, if we're going to desire rightly, is we need We need a great king. And I realize that might sound like a bit of whiplash, like logical whiplash, like that does not follow. But if you look at verses 8 and 9, the writer himself does this little bit of whiplash where he writes this, Lord God of armies, hear my prayer. Listen, God of Jacob. Consider our shield, God. Look on the face of your anointed one. He's praying, and he's praying for God's anointed one, which is a reference to the king. And, you know, this is really important. This is hugely important in the Old Testament because the king was this incredibly important figure. As goes the king, so goes the nation. That was the pattern you saw all over the Old Testament. If you had a good king, if you had a righteous king, if you had a humble king, a king who loved God, there was this amazing sort of like trickle-down effect where everyone in the nation was blessed. But if you had a king, which was far more frequent in Israel's story, who was bad, a king who was not humble, who didn't walk with God, then often the whole nation is led into idolatry and into destruction and devastation. And I would say too, if you see that your struggle with desire is similar to or akin to addiction, this also won't feel like whiplash because an addict needs more than right information. 
We need help. We need intervention. And this is where the psalm, I would say, really takes us straight to the feet of Jesus because it is in Jesus that we have this king, God in the flesh, fully God and fully man, who is the king that we need. If you look at verse 11 of this text, which tells us about who God is and what God gives, I think we can see very clearly this is a picture of Jesus. The Lord God is a son, S-U-N. It's this image of God being the source of life. And we read in John 1-4 that in him, that is in Jesus, was life. And his life was the light of men. Verse 11 describes God as a shield, this image of protection. And in John 10, Jesus tells his followers, he says, I know my sheep. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. In verse 11, it says that the Lord grants favor and honor, or you could translate this, he gives grace and he gives glory. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8 tell us of this grace that comes through Jesus that is lavished upon us. And glory is the term used throughout the Old Testament, especially to talk of God's supreme greatness, of his beauty, of his radiance. It's what Moses longed to see and begged God. God, show me your glory. And somehow the writer is saying that God is going to give us his glory. He's going to make us sharers in his glory, which of course is something the New Testament cannot stop talking about. The eternal son, the word became flesh and we have seen his glory. And as we look at Jesus and we are mesmerized by his beauty, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we all beholding the glory of the Lord are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Or Colossians 1.27 which says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. You might be here today and you know that you're not a Christian or at least you know I do not desire God like this at all. Or you might be here today and you do love God, but you know the consistency and the fervency that we see here is not present in your life. And I want you to think for one minute, what are you supposed to do if that's you? Which I think is a way to say, that's all of us. What are we supposed to do? And here is what I would say is the beauty of Jesus and the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of our God because God graciously gives what he commands. He command, we are to desire him above all things, but he gives what he commands. In other words, the direction is not you to God trying to change your own heart and work up your desires so that you will maybe love him a little more. But the direction of the gospel is down. He comes down. He pours out his life for you. He gives you a new heart. He guides your steps. He gives you his word. He gives you his people. He surrounds you with himself, with his blessing, with his goodness. Will you receive it? Will you receive him and allow him to woo your heart to his greatness and his glory. You need a king. You need a king who can conquer those destructive desires and who will fight for you. 
You need a king who gives himself for you and who will love you with an unbreaking and forever love. And that king is Jesus. Will you receive his grace? Will you let him tune your heart to love and desire him? Let's turn to a time of prayer. This is a time where we can bring our hearts to God, where we can honestly confess our sins to him, where we can ask for his help. Let's do that. We'll take a few moments of silent prayer and then, and then I'll lead us. Let's pray.